in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were, were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the, holy, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the, in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jeremiah and I called each other um, three days ago to make sure we were both wearing cool pink shirts. Made sure they were long sleeve and, you know. Matching this so important. Um, last week we talked about the gospel. And I said last week that um, this was either going to be the longest sermon that I've ever preached, and so it's going to take two times, or it was the shortest sermon series that I've ever preached. And it's only two, uh, you know, two weeks. We talked a lot about the gospel, and we basically said last week that Jesus loves you. No, it's very profound and complicated. Jesus loves you, and we said even Jesus likes you. We said that it is, though very simple, theologically speaking, very simple to even grasp in terms of a data point, that it is devastatingly meaningful for those who believe, for for Christians. Not complicated, not heady but meaningful. And I think I titled the sermon from last week the, the micro-gospel. Um, this week we're going to talk again in Ephesians 1, same passage, just the second half of it. And uh, it's going to make sense of all this plan and purpose of the will and, um, and according to the, uh, to the works of his own mind, the stuff that we heard earlier last week that we didn't spend on. I'll call it the macro-gospel, the big picture. And when I make this distinction, I want to say... Now, there's other ways to cut and slice the one gospel, but this is a way to help me understand it, help you understand it. And the micro gospel, the gospel that is the part of the gospel that is micro, is that Jesus loves you. That's the ransom for many, many that was given. Forgiveness of sins, atonement, adoption, all that stuff we talked about last week. And this week, the gospel macro or the macro gospel is Messiah and King. If it's Jesus loves you in the micro, it's Jesus is Lord in the macro. Okay? That's how I want to make that distinction. And you hear both in the scriptures, right? Uh, uh, the baby Jesus has talked about about the government being upon his shoulders. The bringer of the kingdom, the inaugurator of the kingdom, the conqueror over sin and death 
Jesus is Lord, Jesus loves you. Okay? Now, if you were in, uh, in some, if you're outside of Christian circles, even if you're inside Christian circles, you see this happen a lot where people literally yell at each other about the distinction here. People are, uh, get really frustrated to talk about the gospel's implications for social justice. There's even one radio host that says, if I mention social justice from this pulpit, that you should be uh, wary of me as one who's not preaching the gospel. There is uh, those who say, you don't need to worry about this personal relationship with Jesus stuff. There's a poor person next to you. Feed them. It doesn't matter what you're, uh, that you have prayer and Bible study. You don't care about injustice in the world. And they literally fight each other on these things all the time. But I, uh, I think, I believe that both are too weak of an understanding of the gospel and both of their uh, paradigms need to be exploded. And I think we need each other. If we can characterize the first one as the kind of evangelical conservative approach, then I would say, you evangelicals out there, you need your kind of mainline liberals. Mainline liberals out there, you need your, your general evangelicals. You need these guys We need each other because we both need to refocus on the scriptures and let the micro and macro gospel come before us. We need each other. So we're going to explore the macro gospel, and that's kind of the reasons, one of the reasons why. Um, And what we're going to do is we're going to start backwards. We're going to start at the bottom of of the verses there, and we're going to kind of move up. And what we're going to talk about is Jesus is Lord, as simple as that. We're going to talk about the scope of his lordship. We're going to talk about the resources that he gives us in his lordship. And we're going to talk about the burden of his lordship. So first, let's do the scope. And you see it here in verse 22 and verse 23. Read with me. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Once again, it's simple. Jesus is Lord of the church. Simple enough, right? But I want you to think about the breadth and the beauty of the church and the bigness of the church. Juan Gomez Dorado says, Behind this church, he's talking to a congregation, made out of the blood and bricks you see before you, there is another church, infinite and invisible, whose flags are raised towards heaven. This church lives in the hearts of millions of the faithful who love Christ and his message and it will be reborn out of the ashes and fill the world. Everybody who's ever called out to him, everybody who will ever call out to him is the church, and he is head over it. This is difficult to hear a little bit sometimes, especially um, because if you and I are honest, the church doesn't look so great sometimes, right? The church is actually... um, uh, as John Calvin said, uh, he says this, the church slowly creeping through the greatest difficulties scarcely attains to the condition of mediocrity. It means we're barely getting by, right? Augustine said that the bride is a whore. There's good news and bad news here. The good news is Jesus loves whores. The bad news is that we go whoring after things we ought not. but I think we've domesticated Jesus as the head of the church. We have made him a cheerleader of the church and not its Lord. We have made him the Santa Claus of the church 
or the Easter bunny of the church, but not its Lord. We, um, we have lost uh, something that, the, uh, the, uh, that uh, many writers and many Christian writers over the time have called fear of the Lord. Now, fear of the Lord isn't trepidation because his wrath is on you. In fact, that is no longer there for those who are in Christ Jesus. But fear of this Lord is this kind of profound respect and honor and literally OMG. It's the Lord. And we have tamed and domesticated the Lord. We need not to do that. We need to see him as Lord. Jesus is not a puppet head of his church. He is king. And do not confuse his patience and his mercy with lack of care with lack of desire for justice. Andy Dillard, one of my favorite writers, writes this, and I've probably read this a dozen times in sermons, and I'll probably read it a dozen more. She writes, Why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? On the whole, I do not find Christians, outside the catacombs, sufficiently sensible of the actual conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does not one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. Someone who understands that Jesus is Lord of the church. And it's not confusing his kindness and his love and his mercy with not caring, but just as kindness, patience, and mercy. There's something else, and it's even a more dangerous idea that the Jesus is Lord of the church. It's that Jesus is Lord of all things, it says, right? Look at the kind of the second half of verse 20 with me through 21. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is God seated him. The right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You see that allness of it? The the breadth that's going on there? Not just Lord of the church, but Lord of all things? Including time? And generations? And people, that he created all things, worldly and otherworldly. I want you to think about this for a second. Woodpeckers, jellyfish, the rainforest, the Himalayas, the beating wings of a hummingbird, and plate tectonics. All under his lordship. This means everything that you're pursuing, everything that you want to learn about, all you students who are getting ready to gear up for school again, all you teachers who are, who are teaching, there is something that's true about our Lord. And this is why it's a dangerous thought. Everything we could possibly learn about this universe, everything that could possibly be in this universe, has his name on it to some degree. Sociology is Jesus' sociology. All truth is God's truth. History is his. Chemistry is his. Geology, math, art, architecture, astronomy, 
All creation is his. This is why David can proclaim that the, the heavens declare his glory, that skies proclaim the work of his hands, that day after day, they, day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge that Jesus is Lord. The children's catechism is one of the best ones, the best two questions ever. It's asked number one, who made you? God. Number two, what else did God make? God made all things. Bam. A theology of Jesus is Lord. Done. Handled. Enough for a two-year-old to understand. God made all things. This includes political ideas, economics, banks of America, whatever it be. Whole social systems. Above every rule, power, and authority, dominion is what he has over heaven and earth. The power, the ability, and the goodness to keep the world afloat as it is. All the moving parts of the universe. Nothing breaks outside of his power. Do you realize that your very rebellion against God is fueled by his power? The only reason your tongue can curse God is because he gave you a tongue. You know this? He is Lord of everything, of denominations and the hair on your head. He's Lord of it all. I mean, in one sense, it's, it's a simple application. Jesus is the Lord of this church, and he's the Lord of Charlotte, of Noda, of the U.S., of North America, of the planet. And, and what he's doing this is he's inviting us, I, I, I dare say, commanding us as Lord to believe that it's true. That he holds it all together. And it means this, that you who are his, in some ways, and this is also a dangerous word, are safe in him. He limits evil. He ultimately protects his people and draws them to himself. This means that we're kind of free to love dangerously, knowing that we live in the safety of our Lord. That we can be free to accept love and give love to others. This means that we can say no to being wooed away by things that are too attractive for us. Things like money and time and and, and the things that grab our hearts like power and greed and hedonism. We can say, no, Jesus is Lord. Those are lousy lords. Those are false lords. We can pursue the injustices in the world because we know he controls all things. We are free to know that there's meaning behind what's seemingly chaos sometimes or seemingly random, that he reigns over that. That he's in control of our, doc, our stock markets and our weather patterns and our school boards and our inflation rates and our jobless rates. He's Lord. What else did God make? He made all things. But lordship, power and control, without some character behind it, could just be tyranny, right? Right? Hitler was a lord, an effective one at some point. Every human ruler is a lord to some degree, good and bad. So unless there's some um, character or characteristics of that lordship that, um, that, that come out to show that uh, he's not just a totalitarian dictator, a despot, then we wouldn't have reason to hope. But 
here's what happens, is that the heart of, what, of, of his lordship is actually to resource his people in a new manner, to actually give them resources, new ideas, and new thoughts, and a new community to move us forward. Let me give you, let, let, let's read this passage. I, I would, uh, let's read the passage from 16 to 19, or yeah, I think it's 16 to 18 and a half, all right? I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, now here it is, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. We'll stop there for a second. Uh, maybe better translated, it, it's kind of it, tit for tat. He may, he, may he give you a, a spiritual wisdom and revelation, or a spirit of wisdom and revelation. It has the same kind of meaning and knowledge of him. You, you see what he's giving you here. You see what this resource, this resource is actually a new vision for things. He's actually working on your mind for a second. You see that? It's actually the term you're needing your mind actually comes from Ephesians. Um, the uh, the R.C. Sproul's uh, kind of uh, institution is named after renewing your mind, uh, and it's there. And, um, and, and so, and this might sound a little bit odd to you, but as Lord, one of the things he resources you with is a new imagination a new vision or renewed imagination. What he's doing is having you think anew. Jesus isn't just the Lord. He's the Lord that starts to begin in you a new way of thinking, a new way that the eyes of your heart become enlightened. The eyes of your heart become enlightened, which is a totally mixed, wonderful, mixed, meta, wonderfully mixed metaphor. C.S. Lewis says that I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else right? It gives you a new way to look, a new way to see. I mean, this is where Bob Marley is exactly right. Free yourself from mental slavery. And Jesus' lordship provides us the resource of that new imagination and that new vision. And put these words together, it seems a little odd, but you want to be brainwashed by Jesus. You want to to be in in the program where your mind is adjusted by who he is and what he is. You, you want to be indoctrinated by Jesus. That's what we're looking for. That's the, this, this freeing our mind from mental slavery is reaching deep into the scriptures, into church history and the traditions and, 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 and each other and be changed and formed by these. It's a new eyes. It's a new vision. It's this enlightened hearts thing. And so it's worth asking the question, Pre- and post-conversion for you who are Christians and call out on his name. Do you think differently? Has your imagination been captivated anew by the king and his kingdom? By his lordship and reign? His love and his goodness? Do you hope differently and appreciate differently? Are you formed by the scriptures and the, the statements about what that kingdom might be. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because if you keep going in that, it says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, and we'll keep on 18 now, that you may know what is the hope which, you have, which he has called you, to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in, the, inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Now, the thing that is also being renewed, one of the resources for us, is not this imagination. It's an imagination that's surrounded by hope, riches, 
and power. Hope, riches, and power. And that's also a dangerous thing to talk about when you're a preacher. Riches and power, you know, there's many of people taking advantage of religiously to get to riches and power, right? There's lended hopes that have been preyed on to, uh, to, to, so, that, so that, you can, that people, especially pastors, can be enriched. But I want you to look carefully with me because what is the hope about there? Look at that. The hope to which he has called you. He wants you to know the hope to which he has called you. He wants you to know what are the riches of your inheritance as a saint, as one of his. Remember we talked about adopted family last time? Adopting the family? And then he also wants you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward you according to the working of his great might. So it's, it's to have a hope, again, kind of renewed resource for this imagination of yours on what your calling is. And that you are actually buttressed with the resources of the riches of the inheritance of the sons and daughters of God. Nobody can ultimately take that from you. You are now have the courage to move forward in things. Because he hold, you are an inheritor of all those things. There's, there's, you can get loans if you just come from a rich family. And your job's not that great. This is what we're talking about. You have the buttressed resources of the kingdom around you. And you have, it's almost a revisiting back to the Jesus as Lord is, thing, is that you have this knowledge of the immeasurable greatness of his power towards you and his might. And it's the immeasurable greatness of his power. I mean, that's like, he could have just said he was powerful, right? But he's the immeasurable greatness of his power. He's Lord. Look, this means you got to hope. One of the resources he's given for you is that imagination and that hope again. And hope, I know, is a four-letter word in this day and age. It's a four-letter word. And at some of you, things, it, it seems of, sings of cheesiness and, and, uh, and it hurts some of your ears and it, and it seems too childlike. And uh, as we heard a wonderful sermon about two weeks ago on cynicism, um, is that uh, our cynicism has taken it away from us. But what cynicism does is lack that proper resource of imagination and trust in the lordship of God and his power and his riches. That we can actually do things in this world and be people in this world for each other. It lacks the account of the new vision and the new resources of this new kingdom that he's giving us. See, cynicism is premature disappointment in God. It's, it's, it's planning on the disappointment. It's, it's prematurely hedging your bets that you cannot pin your ears back and go out and love somebody well. It's an unwillingness to see things through or to suspend the judgment on the situation before the Lord's done in it. It's unwillingness to wait and see God's handiwork, the unfolding narrative of your lives that he has promised to finish well by the immeasurable greatness of the power that he has towards those who believe. So what's this mean for us? Let me give you a couple of categories to think about. The hope of your calling, one who believes in Christ, is because you're a child of God to turn this world upside down. 
Every institution needs redeeming. And it needs the redeemed there. And I'm talking everything from banking institutions to family dysfunction. And we are called, as far as the curse is found, to bring love and justice. You see why we need the immeasurable greatness of his power? It's a lofty and amazing calling, and you need to be thinking about those things uh, among uh, whatever, your, whatever your work is. Your work matters. Your calling matters. What you do matters. It matters greatly. And I know some of you are one of 144,000 employees at Bank of America. But that doesn't mean that what you do is not worth it and that it doesn't have human dignity involved in it and that you shouldn't be doing it. It means you've got to think and dream and imagine and hope for other things. Some of you are staying at home and your friends think that's ridiculous and you're wiping baby's bottoms and you're going, I'm not doing anything to impact the world besides raising the next generation. You must hold on to the imagination that Jesus is Lord of all those things. And you're called to envision that macro gospel for your life. Listen, this means you do not in order to be a good Christian worker, that you do not necessarily have to hold a Bible study in the conference room. I like Bible studies, and I like conference rooms. But that's not the first requirement. The first requirement is to go in there and love your neighbors well, to do a good job, to be faithful, to go and be a good team member, to care well for the people around you, to care well about uh, the companies prospering, to hire people and train people well. To resist evil where you can and where you should. To work for justice. To ask questions that nobody else is willing to ask. Which might just get you fired. Which is moving us now into not the resources of the God's lordship, but the burden. The burden of God's lordship or our burden of God's lordship is this, is that transforming love, is that new kingdom that we're to pursue. And the first part of it is each other. And I really, really, really want you to hear this because it's subtle. Look at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And then he goes on to tell. And I've said this a zillion times, but there needs to be a you plural in English. There is in Southern English, y'all. And I don't care if it's a Midwestern translation where it's yuns or you guys or whatever it is in the Northeast or whatever it is, y'all. We need a translation of the Bible that takes into account y'all or when there's lots of y'alls, all y'all. Read it as in the Southern translation. For this reason, because I've heard of y'all's faith, or all y'all's faith, in the Lord Jesus, and all y'all's love toward all the saints. Fundamentally, the institution changing, the, the human flourishing week are called to, is as a people, not as a person. It's the y'all factor. And all y'all need to both be the institution and help flourish the institutions that you all each and every day serve. Listen, I think one of the most important things that we've begun to try at Christ Central Church is, a, is the guilds that we tried. 
where we had the arts and media guilds. And we need to go back at it and try again. And I am renewed of heart to go for it again, trusting our Lord to do it. But we need you who are artists and media types to be together asking the kinds of questions you need to ask in order for you to love your neighbors well in your institution. You teachers need to be doing the exact same thing. You entrepreneurs need to be doing the exact same things. You health professionals need to be doing the exact same things. We need to gather together and encourage each other. I don't even know some of the questions to ask or the issues that are set before you. If I hung out for a while, I probably could start asking some of the questions, and we need to figure out how to do this. But we fundamentally have got to get this micro gospel down together so that we can learn and love our neighbors with human pro- for, for human prospering. That we can love... So, I mean, think about it. If, if you had in a, business, uh, in a business meeting with all the crazy Ponzi schemes or whatever it is, or the, uh, the, the, um, uh, the financial world had an ethic for human flourishing and not an ethic for filling up the pockets of those who are managing the money. Think about if we had a world that was working like that, but we were, we were caring for, uh, for our neighbors as far as the curse is found. It would be amazing. And it's going to start slow, and it's going to start with our little spheres of influence, and it's going to start with baby's bottoms and uh, low-paying uh, corporate jobs. But we begin, and we begin, and we work, knowing that we're tied to the one who says, I am Lord, and I have immeasurable greatness and power to make things happen. You know that the rest of Ephesians goes on to th- talk about things like uh, the dividing the wall of hostility between peoples in Christ. Like, racial justice is central to the gospel. You know it comes and talks about how we manage our families and how uh, the, the, the institutions of marriage need to be... Uh, 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 centered around respect and love and submission and acts of kindness and self-sacrifice to one another. It says radical things like, you know, kids probably should obey their parents. And parents, don't provoke your children. I don't know if you know this, but these are radical ideas. They fundamentally change things. It says things like, you know what? When you're working with your boss, who may be a jerk. It's close. Work as if Jesus were your boss, because he is. He's your actual boss. Honor and respect. What would that mean for us? It talks about things in the rest of Ephesians, like the hardness of our heart is getting in the way of a proper humility humility to each other. It talks about um, that we need to no longer put up with every kind of impurity and greed in our lives, that we should stop our lying to ourselves and to others, that... That, um, that, uh, that we need to get rid of all bitterness and slander and wrath and malice because Jesus is our Lord. The burden of this is heavy. And it's for this revolution of love that is for human flourishing and for our neighbor's good. I mean, fundamentally, our imaginations are reima- or we start to reimagine the world that it's not fundamentally centered around us, but on first the capital O other, and then lowercase others. That it's not all about us all the time. And it's made all possible because Jesus is not only Lord, but He's the type of Lord 
that finishes out the verse in 19. Or in 20. And what, and what, or 19 first. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places? Once again, manner matters to the type of lordship you have. You understand that he is proclaiming utter sovereignty over all things. As the one who died for you and was risen from the dead, that fundamentally the ethic of the new kingdom is about sacrifice. And the king of our kingdom is the one that sacrifices for his servants. That the kingdom is made up of people who are fundamentally served by a Lord. Lord, not just of his church, but of all things. That the right he has over us and to command us to trust him is because he emptied himself for us. That the ethic of the kingdom of God is fundamentally upside down. Race to the bottom. Grace flows downhill. The corporate ladder, keep on going down, love and neighbor. The burden will be costly. You will give up your self-sovereignty. You will have to give up your arrogance and self-reliance, but you get to give up your feeble cover-ups and your silliness. He offers you a freedom from guilt and shame, from an adoption into getting on the train of that love revolution, joining him, would deserve tons worse and get tons more. You know what happens in, Ephesians, in Ephesus? It shows in Acts 18, maybe 17, 19, somewhere in there. 20 is when he leaves Ephesus, so it's before then. Um, what happens is that, and I told you a little bit about how it was, this is one of the centers of... Um, of, of pagan, I didn't use that word, I wasn't trying to use that word meanly, but pagan uh, worship of Artemis. And there were silversmiths who made uh, uh, idols. And when the gospel came to town, when Jesus' Lord, that message came to town, there was such a renewal of the mind, such a renewal of the heart, such a, uh, a, a resetting of the imagination, and such an involvement of the kingdom of God that it bankrupt the silversmiths because they had no more idols to make or because no one was worshiping idols anymore. This is a, this is a historic fact. That, that, that literally the silversmiths go to the ruling uh, 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 party and say, hey, we got to get rid of these Christians because the Christians are messing with the bottom line. Even though they're not, you know, like tearing down anything, they're just, the, the supply and demand is no longer there. And it's no longer there because the hearts and the imaginations of people have changed and changed an economic institution. The center of work and worship of another entity, of, of, a, of, a, of Artemis' temple. There was literally riots in the streets, and they almost killed Paul and the followers. Because Jesus is Lord. And they did it in an upside-down way. They did it with love of neighbor and telling them about this Lord who loves them and cares for them and took away the need to pursue all these other idols. Please dream. 
please cultivate your, cultivate your imaginations. What things would end? What things would get started if we held this macro gospel? It's really a question for you to mull over and work together with from now and until we go. I'm going to read something for you in closing. It's a little bit long. But, Jeremiah, you did such a good job, and it was so, you were so much quicker than I am when I do this. It was so good. You guys are just going to have to hold on for a little bit more time. I'm going to read something to you, and it's a, um, it's a rewriting of a passage in Colossians, which is very similar to our passage today. You get to see there the right hand of the Father and that kind of stuff. And Colossians and Ephesians were books that were written about the same time in, 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 in uh, similar circumstances. They're both while he was in prison and, and probably in prison in Rome, uh, possibly in prison in, in Ephesus uh, after the, um, uh, the riots. But uh, Paul's writing, and, he's, uh, and this person is kind of, um, has cultivated an imagination um, for what it might mean to say that Jesus is Lord, what it might mean for uh, the way we live in this world. And it's, it takes a lot of license, and I, I understand I'm not saying that everything in here is absolutely perfect, but it's rereading the scriptures, and I think what's really great about it, when I bring, to you, bring it for you towards, uh, bring it to you for, is uh, this cultivation of an imagination that Jesus is Lord and that we should, that it has impact for the macro gospel of our daily lives. And it's from Colossians 1.15, which is in the image of the visible God, all that sort of stuff, but here you go. In an image-saturated world, a world of ubiquitous corporate logos permeating our consciousness, a world of dehydrated and captive imaginations in which you are too numbed, satiated, and co-opted to be able to dream of life otherwise, a world in which the empire of global economic affluence has achieved the monopoly on your imaginations. In this world, Christ is the image of the invisible God. In this world, driven by images with a vengeance, Christ is the par excellence, the image above all other images, the image that is not a facade, the image that is not trying to sell you anything, the image that refuses to co-opt you. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the image of God, a flesh and blood here and now in time and history with joys and sorrows, Im- image of who God is, the image of God of flesh and blood here and now in time and history with joy and sorrows. He is the source of the liberated imagination a subversion of the empire because it all starts with him and it all ends with him. Everything, all things, whatever you can imagine, visible and invisible, mountains and atoms, atoms, outer space, urban space, and cyberspace. Whether it be the Pentagon or Disneyland or Microsoft or AT&T, whether it is the institutional power structures of the state, the academy, the market, all things have been created in him and through him. He is their source, their purpose, their goal, even their rebellion, even their idolatry. He is the sovereign one. Their power and authority is derived at best and parasitic at worst. In the face of the empire, in the face of presumptuous presumptuous claims to sovereignty, in the face of an imperial and idolatrous forces in our lives, Christ is before all things. He is sovereign in life. 
not the pimp dreams of the global market, nor the idolatrous forces of natural, nat- nationalism, nor the insatiable desires of a consumerist culture. In the face of this disconnected world, where home is a domain in cyberspace, where neighborhood is a chat room, where public space is a shopping mall, where information technology promises a tuned-in, reconnected world, all things still hold together in Jesus. And this sovereignty takes on cultural flesh, and the coherence of all things is socially embodied in the church. Against all odds, against most of the evidence, in a show-me culture where words alone don't cut it, the church is flesh and blood, here and now, time and history, the embodiment of Jesus. It's a body politic, if you will, around a common meal, an alternative, an alternative economic practice, a radical service that is most vulnerable, a refusal of the empire, a love of creation. In the face of the disappointed world of betrayal, a world in which all fixed points have proven illusory, a world into which we are anchorless and adrift, Christ is the foundation, the origin, the way, the truth, and the life. Christ is Lord.